Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Album Years with myself and my co-host, Mr. Timothy J. Bowness. Say hello, Tim. Hello. Now, one of the things we've kind of made more of an effort to do since we reconvened was to go beyond our original our original remit was to sort of concentrate, I think, on the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, something like the 90, mid-60s to the mid-90s, that kind of mm-hmm. window. It was up to the year 2000, I think, yeah. And we sort of considered that to be the period when, al- you know, the album was king. But we've made an effort to go beyond, partly because people have requested it, but we've made an effort to go beyond that. And we did 2001 as our we last. We did, yeah. Such a long time ago, I can't even remember. But now, <laughs> today, we and it's almost like, I mean, it's almost like been throwing a, a, dart, a dartboard, isn't it? We haven't picked this year for any particular reason. It was just randomly chosen. 2006. Just kind well, of chosen at random, right? It was sort of chosen at random. I think well, part of the reason I chose it is because we were picking years that we were surprised at how much we liked. So 2001, we thought was going to be a bit of a dud. But in the end, it turned out to be a bold new beginning for music. 21st century, looking good. And I think we speculated at that point, when did the rot set in? And um, so I sort of chose a couple of years um, for our next two that I remembered feeling pretty uninspired in. And the one we're going with today, 2006, um, is one that when I then looked through the list of releases, I remembered it correctly. Whereas um, the other year that I chose, actually, I found lots of things that we both connected yeah. with and, and loved as albums. That'll be the uh, the next podcast. But yeah, so 2006 was partly because there was that question we asked, when did we feel the rot for the album set in? Right. And also because I remembered this to be a bad year. And, and the interesting thing is that, you know, I can think of... 2005 and 2007, um, having new artists and albums that really excited me. So this particular year, a bit like 1992, was one that just didn't produce much for me, really. Yeah, and I, I feel the same. I mean, without giving too much away at the moment, the other year that you've you've picked that we're going to do for the next one is an, another year from our original period. You know, yeah. that's from the mid '80s, isn't it? So it wasn't totally surprising to me to see lots of records on that list that I remember buying and liking, or at least engaging with. But this, I have to say, this list I'm looking at in front of me now, 2006, is quite slender for me as Mm. far as records that either A, I've heard, or B, I guess more importantly, that I actually like. There's very, very little here. Now, it may be like you say that the year before this or the year after this, there would have been lots. But right now, the answer to the question, when did the rot set in? <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely looking at this list and seeing, well, maybe for me, for me, it was around this time that at least I, I, you know, I began to lose interest with sort of mainstream, you know, music. Maybe I was still listening to, I don't know, ambient music or experimental music, but I wasn't engaged with necessarily the big hitting record releases of this year. What's interesting by this time, and maybe it's the impact of the internet, I find that what you what you've listened to out of this i've not listened to what i've listened to you haven't listened to and there's a far greater fracturing of people in their own little bubbles and i kind of find that with with friends in general that whereas we would have these kind of listening sessions and a lot of tastes in common there's a point in the 21st century that maybe because of the advent of you know the laptop the personal computer the beginnings of of download and streaming culture that we're all in very separate bubbles really and this mm. kind of list sort of suggests it let's jump right in now another thing that's interesting about this list um because you put this list together is that there is 
the people who have listened to the show before will know that we usually have categories, we have groupings, don't we, of records. And, and I think, as you kind of suggested, there doesn't seem to be any real... There's no patterns, there's no groupings, that logical groupings you can put things into, at least not easily. No. Now, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing or is that kind of a bad thing or is it just a thing? It's neither good nor I, bad. It just I think it's neither good nor bad. Yeah, in terms, of, in terms of producing good music, it's neither good nor bad. I think we've had years where nothing's happened, yet there'll still be fantastic albums. And, and of the albums we're going to discuss today, you know, one or two that are amongst the best absolutely sit outside the culture sit outside of time and you wouldn't know where to place them you know there is no genre well the, i mean there are i'm looking at the list again as you're talking and, and there are some sort of trends i see and, and one of the trends which i think also you alluded to in our in our pre-record conversation was that there is a bunch of people that have been around a while that are producing some quite late career peak work. Um, So we have on this list, we have Scott Walker, we have uh, Johnny Cash, we have Sparks, we have The Who, we have David Gilmour. So there is a kind of trend here that that the older artists are coming back with some sort of late career highs here. Um, So so should we talk about those for a moment? I mean, I think the most significant one for me out of those would be the Scott Walker album. Now, we've talked about Scott Walker before. He just continued, didn't he, to become more and more and more out there. And I think we've discussed this. There's a point at which the balance was right for us personally between the you know the great crooner the great song Mm. interpreter and the experimentation and that point was climate of hunter and tilt and now we have the next record another 10 years after tilt um the drift which Mm. was his first for 4ad and it for me this is a record i admire more than I love. I love the fact he made it. It's just so experimental uh, in a way that normally I would like, but I think the combination of his voice and, and, and the music becomes quite impenetrable, certainly in relation to what I love about the previous records. I don't know if you agree with me on that, Tim. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, for me, the sweet spot, I think, is... I, I really like three and four. Um, I love the tracks that he did on the, the Walker Brothers album, 1978, Night Flights. And I think that that's where he hits that sweet spot. Uh, Night Flights, as you say, um, Climate Hunter and Tilt. This comes 11 years after Tilt. And I don't know what I was expecting, but he does, to his credit, take all of the ideas that he has had on Climate Hunter and Tilt much, much further. Um, I mean, they're almost like extreme experimental audio plays at times. You know, this is the album yeah. which features the thumping of the side of beef or whatever it is. He actually has a percussionist and yeah. got, got some beef in the studio. As somebody else says, I think on the internet, somebody was pummeling the pork at this stage. I don't know whether it was pork or beef or chicken. I, I'm suspecting it was pork or beef as it was quite large it could have been a pig carcass. i'm sure i'm sure whatever it was i'm sure he would have given great consideration to exactly what kind of meat was required for his conceptual you know sort of <laughs> conceit yeah but i think you're absolutely right to be honest i think this is a trend obviously when you when you listen to the next record bish bosh i mean that for me what you just described is exactly that they're like audio plays these are not songs anymore climate hunter and tilt still possessed some of the beauty of three, four, his great songcraft, his gorgeous voice. Whereas at this stage, it's an extremely stern voice that is matching the lyrical preoccupations. And the lyrical preoccupations are extraordinary. So I think 
Clara, the one with the pummeling of the pork, that is about, if I'm right, it's Mussolini and Mussolini's mistress being hung and punched by a crowd in Italy. So it's a kind of the the death of Italian fascism. One of them is about Elvis Presley's unborn twin, Jesse. So they're kind of extraordinary from a lyrical point of view as well as from a musical point of view and bringing these vivid lyrics to life. And and like you, you know, God, I'm so glad he made this album. This is one of the most uncompromising and wonderful albums to ever hit the UK top 50 charts. You know, Mark Holman, when he heard Tilt, allegedly walked out of the playback, disgusted. Christ, I wonder what he made of Bish Bosch. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah. yeah. It's like, OK, <laughs> you've tried Tilt. What about Bish Bosch? Some of, these, some of these moments on these tracks are genuinely terrifying, aren't they? I mean, that moment when he starts... Is it, does he doing, he's doing an impression of Donald Duck on one song, isn't he? Yes, it? yeah. Is it Donald Duck, he's saying? And it, it, <laughs> and it should be it should be hilarious and it should be ridiculous. Oh. But it's absolutely bloody terrifying. He pulls it off. But it's not the sort of thing you would put on for a romantic dinner date, is it? Let's face it. Uh, well, well, this, it is, this is really quite extreme musical theatre. And the voice has become so mannered, hasn't it? I think that's one of the other things that I have a problem with. The voice has become so mannered by this time. It's like, it's like someone doing an impersonation of Scott Walker at his most mannered. And I think a lot of singers end up perhaps going down that route, don't they? Where they become almost a, almost a, almost a parody of themselves in that respect. I think that is true. And, and the other thing as well is he almost seems to be undercutting any beauty. So there are only two tracks that you could consider to be remotely conventional. One of them is Cossacks Are. And one of them mm. is the very last track, if you know that one. It's A Lover Loves. Mm. And A Lover Loves has melody, has sweetness. And in the middle of this, if you remember, he's going... So he's singing this beautiful melody. (laughs) And it reminds me of that, you know, that watermelon in Easter hay, the gorgeous um, piece by Frank Zappa. And Zappa always undercuts it with that cynical voiceover. This is even worse. You're trying to lose yourself in the beauty of the guitar and the beauty of the voice. I think, you know, I think what we're both saying is that we kind of understand, we recognise and concede the album is a masterpiece. It's a work of genius. It's just not yeah. something that we, you know, we could imagine wanting to listen to very often. And it's that Trout Mask replica thing. Is you listen to it and you're just dazzled by it. Yeah, uh, It's so uncompromising. It's so unlike anything else anyone has done, you know, before or since. And yet it's not something that you're able to warm to particularly. So, uh, you know, I'm so happy that album exists. I think his career is absolutely fascinating. The whole trajectory of his career is absolutely fascinating. The Drift obviously is a a massive, a massive entry in in that career trajectory, Mm. isn't it? I was going to say, one of the things that makes this so extraordinary, as you say, this is an album that in some ways is more experimental than, say, the Nico albums of the late 60s, early 70s. It's one of the most extreme albums ever to come under a pop and rock umbrella. But think about it. Mid-60s, middle-of-the-road crooner. And I was looking at the list of people on it. Peter Walsh co-produces it. Peter Walsh was a mainstream 1980s producer for the likes of Simple Minds. And the session players on it, they include people who were on Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street and were regular session players in the 70s and 80s. People like Hugh Burns, I think it is. John Giblin's the bass player. So in some ways, the people involved on paper 
You couldn't imagine them creating this work. But then you say that, but then on the next record, no, not the next record, the record that he made just before he passed away, he went and worked with some drone metal guys. So uh, maybe maybe he kind of felt that himself, that he was too, you know, relying too but, much on this sort of core group of musicians. What's interesting about that is that the album with Sonno, which actually I like, is the most accessible of his later works. It's prettier in a way even though he's working with an experimental drone metal band i mean it's that thing that on paper you could not conceive that album if you just looked at the list of names what's come out is remarkable so we should probably move on tim so um there's a bunch of records here some of these people i i I haven't heard the, the lindsay buckingham record i haven't heard the who record i haven't heard the johnny cash record so maybe you can talk a little bit about about these and tell me and the listeners about these under the skin lindsay buckingham i think is one of the best albums he's ever made it came after um i think it was a 14 year gap in solo albums and um it was his first album after the say you will fleetwood mac reformation and it's incredibly distinctive um He's developed this quite unique uh, acoustic guitar sound with a lot of arpeggio and and echo. Um, Covers a Donovan song, which is always a good thing for us. Um, And it's surprisingly impassioned and bitter. So his voice is still on great form. This is the thing that these guys at this stage are late 50s, early 60s, and their voices are still extraordinarily good. And so this, you know, really is quite an emotional, distinctive entry. And I guess it comes back to what we were saying earlier, that the older guys at this stage, they're making the music that I think they always wanted to make. They've gone past that 80s pop period when perhaps they were making concessions. They've gone past the 90s when perhaps they were a little unsure of their abilities. They've arrived at the mid 2000s. And they've thought, well, we are what we are. We're going to make the albums we want to hear. So there's a there's a d- decidedly more idealism and emotions. So endless wire. That, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I, I was just going to say to him, just picking up on the point you made there. Is that something to do with getting to a certain age? Because I guess I feel, you know, I feel that way myself too. And, you know, obviously we're both in our 50s now. And maybe as you get to a certain age and you just start thinking to yourself, well... I don't need to to do anything to please anybody but myself now. Mm. Um, you're not trying to fulfill what the industry expects of you anymore. Yeah. You've kind of built an audience for yourself. And may, maybe that is a, just a sort of mature, a, a, a something to do with maturing and, and getting to that age where you just don't care anymore what other people expect or want from you. Having said that, I think we've always been a bit like that. Yeah, I was about to say, I I think you're right with a lot of musicians, but I think many musicians that we discuss and like did go through a period where perhaps you could say they compromised their idealism in order to achieve. And I don't think you and I ever did that. You know, at the point when we were being encouraged to do so, if anything, I think it forced us the other way. You know, we would... Well, briefly, we did, didn't we? We, I think, very early on, we we made a few singles and and you know contrived singles to be radio friendly and all that stuff. So, but it was very brief, I think, wasn't it? And it made us it made us sort of redouble our efforts in a way to not go down that path. I think you're right. Um, yeah. So it, it was a it was a it was a lesson that we learned pretty early on, and I think since then we've kind of stuck to that, haven't we? But there's a sense, but there's a sense, I think, with these musicians you're talking about that, as you say, they've kind of spent the 80s and 90s in a way trying to chase the young pretenders, trying to match up, try, trying to stay relevant, feeling mm. like they have to stay relevant somehow. And they've got to this point where they've just said, nah, fuck it. 
Mm. Uh, this is what I do. This is what I like to do. I don't care anymore. Um, this is why I make music. So the music seems to, I guess, naturally seems to begin to have more integrity. Certainly the David Gilmore record on an island. It's nothing you haven't heard David Gilmore do before in a way, but it's what he does very well and he's doing it very well. Extremely well, yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a very sort of pretty leisurely album that slightly hints at some of the Floydian grandeur but in some ways it's just a beautiful singer-songwriter album as if he's cast aside every single record company dictate and thought I'm just going to write some songs that I love and work with musicians that I trust so you've got people like Phil Manzanera who I think co-produces it and plays on it you've got Robert Wyatt I think on one track as well so this is an album made with friends as much as anything else. Yes, and it, obviously he's allowing himself in a way to fall back into his comfort zone. Now, that's something you couldn't accuse Scott Walker of doing. No. Um, but, and maybe that's the difference between the Scott record and some of these other records we're talking about, although I haven't, as I haven't mm. heard the Who or Lindsay Buckingham records. But maybe these are artists allowing themselves to fall back into their comfort zone, do what people love about them, do what they love to do. But what about the Who record? And I, I don't know this record, the Who well, record. I mean, how well, is that? the Buckingham album does have a, a certain bitterness. I mean, one of the things that's amazing when you consider Fleetwood Mac's success is how on a few tracks he almost seems to be lamenting the fact that people are ignoring him. There's, there's an aspect of that, but actually it gives the album a really interesting edge. You know, this is not actually a complacent album. You know, Under the Skin, I really would rate as one of Lindsay Buckingham's finest achievements. And I'm going to go against the grain on this because I know that the reviews weren't necessarily good, but it enables us to talk about contemporary production as well. Endless Wire by The Who. It's, it's one of his big conceptual works. It's got the rock band with perhaps more acoustics. It's that mix that you hear on Who's Next, but it's the band that are weathered with age. You've got the synths. You've got the Terry Riley style classical minimalism. You've got the riffs, but you've got some very understated songs and you also have quite a big concept at the core of the album as well which I'm not going to describe in the way that I would never describe the core concept that Who's Next was going to be about but it's in some ways an extension of that but they sound like The Who in 2006 the voices are great the voices are weathered there's one track which is called Antian Theatre which closes the album and I think it's one of the best things The Who have ever done and what it features is a lovely acoustic guitar arpeggio, Roger Daltrey singing quite emotively, and a very, very laid-back, almost hip-hop groove in the background. So it's the Who doing something different, but entirely themselves. And it contrasts with the Who album, which you may not have heard from two years ago, Who. And with that, it's almost as if they're saying, "Okay, what do people like about the Who? Now, this album got fantastic reviews. And I think it's a weaker record. I still like it, but I think it's a weaker record. It's almost like, okay, let's take this aspect of Who's Next, this aspect of Quadrophenia, a little bit of my generation. And the other thing they've done is they've auto-tuned Daltrey's voice. So on Endless Wire, it's pre-perfect pitch. It's pre-the auto-tune domination. So Townsend and Daltrey's voices sound really raw throughout the album, and I think it's a positive. Whereas on the album from a couple of years ago, it's almost as if they're trying to make Daltrey sound younger. They're certainly trying to keep his pitching um, perfect. And you can hear it, you know, if you're aware of these things, you can hear the autotune on almost every single track. And it neuters it, it neuters these 
powerful, new, quite strong Townsend songs. You know, certainly the last album goes against what we were just saying. It's Townsend saying, I am still relevant. I can still make a racket. Whereas Endless Wire is him going down his labyrinthine conceptual roots. And it's more enjoyable because of that. All right, so maybe we should move on. I mean, there are other records made by oldies this year. Johnny Cash, American 500 Highways, Elton John, The Captain and the Kids, uh, which, again, I haven't heard, but I've heard good things about it. It was, I think it was seen at the time as a return to, you know, what people liked about him. Uh, but let's move on to some of the more contemporary artists this year. So Joanna Newsom, and I don't know how you say the title of this record, Ys, Y-S, Ys, is it? Ys, that's how I always said it. yeah. She's a very interesting artist, isn't she? Um, I, I bought this record. It's one of the few new records I did buy this year. Um, so just listeners who maybe don't know, this this artist kind of her harp is her... She's a singer-songwriter, but her, her choice of instrument for accompaniment is her is harp. She plays the harp, which already is a very, very different sound. This is not just another, another sort of singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar or piano. But she also writes these very kind of sprawling... Um, most of the songs on this record are about 10 minutes long, aren't they? It's yeah, five, yeah. if I remember rightly, there's five 10-minute long sources. There is this storytelling aspect going on. She's she's kind of got this slightly uh, kooky, hippie chick kind of vibe, hasn't she, about mm. her. But it's very beautiful. The string arrangements are lovely. I think Jim O'Rourke produced this record, did he, or mixed this record? I, th- I know that Van Dyke Parks did some of the arrangements oh, Van Dyke for Parks, it. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because she almost comes from that tradition, doesn't she? Of almost baroque, yeah. baroque kind of string arrangements and storytelling. And she seemed like an artist very much out of time, which I guess, you know, again, something that backs up your theory that there isn't really any sense of strong sense of direction this year, mm. uh, which is it, which is interesting that you have an artist like Joanna Newsom breaking through. I mean, how would you sort of characterise what she does? I've probably failed to do it justice. I don't know. I mean, I think there was, if there was any kind of movement, um, you had people like Devendra Bernhardt, um, I can never pronounce it, Susan Stevens as well, doing similar things in that they were kind of reclaiming eccentric 60s, 70s singer-songwriter ideas and ambitious orchestral arrangements and fusing that, I guess, with a contemporary sensibility. And yeah, I, I think it's a it's a really strong album, Ease. I think she has a marvellous voice, which is kind of weird because it's somewhere between little girl and old woman. It's like she sounds mm. simultaneously incredibly wise and cracked, but also very innocent. There's a kind of Bjorkish quality at times. And that's one of the only relatively contemporary influences you can hear in what she does. But you're right that these are sort of five, seven to 11 minute harp mini symphonies with lovely string arrangements um quite a sort of storytelling narrative and it could have existed at any time from 1967 to 2006 to now and Mm. been hailed as a classic because it's so quirky but it's it's quirky but i mean you know it obviously it obviously did reach quite a large audience very yeah uh I mean, apparently, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page now. It's sold 
over a quarter of a million copies this record now this is not an easy record no no uh, i mean it you know it's not it's not as extreme as something like scott walker's <laughs> the drift because it's very beautiful yeah uh, and it's very kind of engaging inviting it's a very warm sound but the songs are not really songs are they they're more like narratives which is something it does have in common with the scott walker yeah. approach you know this more, more sort of like mini mini sort of plays in a way but i mean i think a lot those artists you've mentioned the devandra banhart and the stevens you know they're all sort of artists you would loosely say psychedelic folk artists yeah. you know they kind of got that they've got that sort of sense of being in the tradition of folk singers and singer songwriters but the music is much more out there and much more i mean she has she has everything from banjo to string arrangements so it's got it's got its roots in americana in a way too hasn't it yeah there's something about it that, that could not i mean I, I appreciate what you're saying there's something about it that couldn't have existed in the 60s or the 70s mm. it does also have a very contemporary edge to it a very contemporary very sort of pristine jim o'rourke mixed the record i know okay, jim was in right. there somewhere it's a very pristine very high fidelity sounding record isn't it yeah i, I and yes I, I think that she has the relationship to let's say bernhardt and stevens that maybe the beach boys and van dyke parks had to the psychedelic beatles and psychedelia in general, because if you listen to Beach Boys of the late 60s and Van Dyke Parks of the late 60s, there's a real sense, again, of American tradition. It could be anything from blues to bluegrass to Dixieland to yeah. old school Gershwin ballads. And she seems like she has absorbed all of this. But it's interesting because, you know, at the time, I would say, other than this hint of Björk's eccentricity, I couldn't see anything close to it. And one of her favourite albums of all time was Roy Harper's Stormcock, which is four very long, rambling singer-songwriter pieces. That that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense to me. Yes, I mean, but she's got a very untrained voice, hasn't it? hasn't she as well? I mean, it's a very. It, it doesn't sound. I mean, in in complete contrast to most female voices mm. you hear now. Uh, which almost seem to have come through that American, you know, American Idol kind of filter. Yeah, Joanna Newsom's voice almost sounds naive, naive and untrained, doesn't it? And it's and and for that reason, I mean, I think we've spoken about this before on 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 the show on the podcast that these days underachieving voices are much more appealing than those overachieving, you know, sort of American Idol type voices. You know, do you think of people like Bill Callahan as well from yeah. Smog? You know, going back to that tradition of the Bob Dylans, the Tom Waits. Mm. These are not. These are not trained, professional, quote-unquote, voices, and they're much more engaging and appealing for that reason. They really touch you for that very reason. I entirely agree, and I think, as I said, going back to The Who, that's one of the problems. In this year, 2006, they're letting Daltrey sound like Daltrey, but by 2019, they're giving it the contemporary American Idol autotune production, which just doesn't suit a raw spirit or raw voice like Daltrey, really. Yeah, and I see that. I mean, I can even hear auto tune on the new, the two new ABBA songs, which I think yeah. are amazing, <laughs> by the way. But the one, the one caveat to that is I can hear the auto tune, and you know, I'm, they're in the late sixties, early seventies now, so that you know, they're probably the voices aren't as strong as they used to be. But still, I wish, in a way, I could hear the voices cracking and maybe not reaching those notes, rather than that signature that I hear of the auto-tune and the Melodyne plug-ins. This leads to the Johnny Cash album from this year, because Cash Mm. died in 2003. And um, as you probably know, Rick Rubin, who did Mm. this with quite a number of artists, basically took a number of artists back to their roots and saying, look, what do you want to make? Take you out of the studio system, the record company system. What album do you want to make? And I will help you do this. And so he made um, a series of albums called the American 
albums in which Cash is mostly in a studio with a guitar, singing songs he loves, plus a few contemporary songs that Rubin would have brought to his attention, like Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. And what they do is exactly what you've just said, that they leave this guy who's in his late 60s, early 70s, to sing as he sings. American Five isn't perhaps as as good as uh, American Four, The Man Comes Around, but it's incredibly strong and very, very touching for that very reason that they've left this, as he would have probably been then, 72, just before he died, because this, I think these were the last tapes he did before he died in 2003. You know, there was no attempt to disguise that this was an ill man in his early 70s, and it makes the songs all the more affecting. So let, let's talk about um, something else that was genuinely new this year. And I remember this record coming out. This was a record that had famously broken, or an, act, an artist that had famously broken through MySpace. At least that was the story. Mm. Uh, Arctic Monkeys. Some younger people might not even remember MySpace. It was it was MySpace was Facebook before Facebook existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for a very and for a very brief moment in the mid two thousands, the mid noughties. It was what everyone was trying to, to to get, you know, to get their music across on because this Arctic Monkey success story. They released their first album uh, this year called Whatever People Say I Am, That's What I'm Not. And it was massive, wasn't it? I mean, you know, I bought it. I was curious. I'd heard the singles. And what was really interesting about it is that it was that another of those bands in the tradition of the Smiths and the Stone Roses that were making no attempt to cover up their, you know, their northernness, their, yeah. you know, their the fact that they were from the north of England, singing in this very, very, very strong accent, um, and it's got that kind of kitchen sink drama lyrical quality too, hasn't it? I know you, you, you know, you yeah, adore, yeah. and I love that too. Morrissey, of course, you know, famous for doing that in his lyrics. And it's something that absolutely Alex Turner has too, isn't it? It's almost like he's just giving you these little slices of of life, you know, his life. And I, I and I must admit, I found that really refreshing. I hadn't really heard it done with so much wit since the days of mm. you know listening to the Smiths' records growing up. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed this record. It it didn't it didn't become as fixed in my you know in my psyche as the Smiths' records, but that could be an age thing, you know. Mm. I was already you know grown up by then, so it didn't kind of hit me the way the Smith stuff did. But I think in its own way, it's just as distinctive and just, and also they've, they've, they've really carved out a career. Um, yeah, yeah. And they have developed and they have evolved as I understand it from what I've heard of over the years of the records, they have really become artists uh, and this is where it all begins. So what was your take on this record when it came out? To? I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, I really liked the, um, the da- Bait Look Good on the Dance Floor single. And I think it was partly his voice that appealed to me. I, I thought he had this kind of ragged, almost Kevin Coyne quality, actually. And so I liked the energy of it. You know, to me, it was a little like if the Lars met the Smiths. Like you, I liked it, thought it was impressive, but it didn't touch me in the way that perhaps the Smiths had done. And I think that's partly because there's a greater melancholy strand in the Smiths. There was a greater love of the epic and love of the ballad in the Smiths, which I think you and I are quite partial to. And in that sense, this album is very tight. You know, it's much closer to the Lars in terms of their sort of songwriting discipline and concision if you like yeah yeah there's not there's not a lot of stretching out in terms of of the musical palette is there on this no. record i think I, I think they did that a lot more yeah, later yeah, on yeah. with their later yeah. records yeah. yeah 
but this record is is essentially a, a you know guitar based track. I think even the title comes from a from one of those old movies, isn't it? Now I'm thinking, it's, isn't isn't whatever people say I'm not what people say I am? That's what I'm not. Isn't that from one of those old? It sounds like something from movies? Saturday Night Sunday yeah. Morning, doesn't it? It sounds something like Albert it, Finney would say. You know, and in in some ways also one of the last rock bands to have broken through. You know, and we're talking yeah, yeah. about 15, 16 years ago now, but. They were one of the last rock bands that ever broke through to the to the you know to the big time in that sense you know the, the sort of band that could headline uh, a big festival a Reading or a Leeds festival or whatever uh, because I can't think of any since since Arctic Monkeys anyone has really broken through on that level you know I'm talking about the sort of Muse Radiohead level and they have they did mm. and they have and as you say I think a lot of it is down to the quality of his of his observation and his lyrics and his voice. And not covering up the fact they're from Sheffield, you know, they're from the north of England, you know, that's that's always something quite appealing, isn't it? I think as well, what was quite clever is that he, you know, Turner very quickly had a side project that was much more epic and Scott Walker influenced, as it happens, you know, that kind of Scott Walker of mid to late 60s. Um, so I think very quickly, you know, if you thought they had something extra, they proved they had something extra pretty quickly, I think. Talking of Radiohead, um, Tom York released his first solo record uh, this year, The Eraser, which is one of the few records on this list I can genuinely say I absolutely love and still listen to. Um, Now, there was a sense even by this time that where does Radiohead end and Tom York begin? Because Radiohead had already embraced Electronica, you know, in, in albums like Amnesiac and Hail to the Thief. But this is Tom completely sort of giving himself to the to the electronic electronic world, isn't it? It has a lot of the sort of influences of the music he was listening to by artists like on the Warp label, that sort of IDM mm-hmm. electronica. But he's done that amazing thing where, and I know one of the conversations you and I have a lot is that you don't relate to a lot of electronic music mm-hmm. because it doesn't have that emotional tug that lyrics and vocals and a strong sort of central vocal performance would give it for you that would make you love it or instrumental performance as well you know because obviously i listen to a lot of jazz and a lot of ambient but there's always right but it doesn't have that yeah Yeah. it doesn't have that solo voice that kind of pulls you in but here's an example of a record that does have that you know this is this is electronic music this is you know quote unquote god i must stop doing that (laughs) this is this is in many respects quite robotic mechanical electronic idm music but with his voice, mm. which is an amazing kind of tool for, for pulling you in emotionally and touching you emotionally. What did you make of this record, Tim? Do you, do you know the record? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I, I mean, this comes out of Kid A really more than anything else, because I think Radiohead sort of reasserted themselves as a rock band with electronic influences as the 2000s went on. And this is him pursuing strands of, of Kid A and taking them much, much further. So, you know, it does have a kind of very um, icy, robotic, glitchy, electronic sound throughout, but he has this very ragged, emotional voice that, yeah, it ties it all together for somebody like me. It's not um, a compromised record, and it's certainly not an accessible record, but there's enough of a sort of human quality to draw me in. So, you know, this is kind of electronica with a, a real human edge and, and I liked it and of course it it provides a great entry point into his solo work which I guess has a couple of strands and one of the strands is taking this music even further and the other is the more soundtrack aspect that he's developed of late as well 
I think he has this knack for just, I mean, just when you think you kind of understand what the track is and where it's going and what mm. kind of musical vocabulary he's using, he will introduce something that just kills you with its beauty. I mean, he's done this, he did on, yeah. his, on his last record too, you know, these electronic, very kind of cold electronic backings, but then he'll introduce some keyboard chord progression or arpeggio or something that's just devastatingly beautiful. Um, yeah. You know, it might come two thirds of the way through the song or something. And he does that a few times on this record, notably on the final track on the record, which is my favourite on the record called Symbol Rush. Mm-hmm. He's just got that ability to just grab you when you think you're just losing interest because it's quite a cold, sort of impenetrable yeah, yeah. electronic sound. It sounds like he's just sort of noodling over the top with his voice. And then it will just suddenly cohere. The whole track will cohere and it all just falls into place. And uh, the other album, of course, he's made recently that, that you know, as, as you kind of pointed out, the soundtrack element, the soundtrack to mm. Suspiria, which I think is incredible yeah, yeah. too. People talk about the original Goblin soundtrack to Suspiria, which is great. I actually think the Tom York one is even better. And I think it's, con- you know, why it works, it's convincing. It doesn't seem like sort of middle-aged superstar rock person attempting to be the Aphex twin. It's anything but. He's completely in control of what he's doing and he's adding something to it. And I guess the actual biggest surprise with it is that it hasn't been particularly influential because it's quite unique. You know, this really is somebody coming from a sort of rock and singer-songwriter background, uniquely adapting experimental electronic elements. Tom York does seem an artist alone, really. Well, you say that. I mean, I I have to say he's been really influential on me. Mm. Um, I mean, if you listen to a track like from my last album, like King Ghost, which is... Very, co- I mean, the, the whole sound of it is electronic, except the voice. That's the only kind of human element in it. And that very much is, is the influence of, you know, not that it sounds like his mm-hmm. records, but that idea of taking kind of cold, glitchy electronica and putting a very sort of affecting, beautiful, you know, sort of vocal melody over the top. But I think it's interesting you say that. I think he is one of those artists that, as you say, is almost creating his own world. There are some artists that are very easy to emulate. And there are other artists that are so difficult to copy that it, they almost have their own scene. They almost create their own scene. I think of people like Peter Hamill. I think, mm-hmm. of, I think of people, like again, like Scott Walker. They're hard to copy, aren't they? They're hard to emulate. I mean, I think Kate Bush too. Kate Bush is an artist. Everyone, you know, it's, it, there was a time, wasn't there, when it seemed every slightly quirky female singer-songwriter mm. that came onto the scene would get compared to Kate Bush. But the point is that none of them ever sounded like Kate Bush. Um, you cannot. Same with Bjork. Mm. You can't really sound like artists. I think Bjork is interesting. She's almost like the, the female equivalent of a Tom I, I was about she? to say, I was going to say, actually, I'm going to yeah. contradict myself here because, in fact, she was doing this perhaps even earlier than Tom York and Kid A. You know, she was mm. experimenting with cutting-edge electronic producers, electronic artists, and humanising it with her voice. So I think that, you know, maybe we say... It's a field of two and they're both utterly unique. And the way in which they process those electronic influences is very different. So if you're listening to Vespertine, which obviously is using a lot of electronic elements, I mean, that's a very symphonic, quite coherent, beautiful statement. Whereas um, the eraser is is more uncompromising. And again, you know, what's interesting here is for this year, 2006, we found three albums already, The Drift, The Eraser... And um, East, Joanna Newsom, that are not following any record company dictates and being hugely successful. And that's quite encouraging, really, that, you know, because people always say, oh, you could never have 
success with an album that so comprehensively rips up the rule book. But 2006, even though it's not proving to be our year, it's still proving you can make extraordinary statements and be successful with them. Well, I, I take issue slightly with you there, Tim. I don't think The Drift sold. I don't, I don't think The Drift sold very well at all. Number one. Um, you know, number one in are. Belgium, sir. And I'm not sure, by the standards of Radiohead, I'm not sure the Eraser probably sold that well either. But I mean, by virtue of the fact that it was the, the solo album by Tom York, it probably would have sold pretty well. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think any of these records really crossed over to a massive audience. But what you're saying is still absolutely true. You know, they're, they're amazingly uncompromising statements by really unique artists that seem to be inhabiting their own little world. And that... It's fantastic to see that still happening in, yeah. in 2006, you know, a year, a year that we on paper previously thought was, was not a particularly strong year. Yeah, but I think you're absolutely right about Bjork. I mean, even going back beyond Vespertine, All Is Full Of Love. I mean, mm-hmm. what, a, what a song, you know, so emotionally touching. And yet it's, its backing is entirely uh, electronic, I think. Bar the odd return to a more conventional pop format, she's kind of got further and further out. Yeah, she's work. lost me. I, yeah. I, I, Bjork lost me a long time ago, I'm afraid. Yeah. 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 But, but again, it, I like experimental music. But I mean, that's the problem, I think, with problem you know it's not a problem it's what makes them special but it's the the issue as a listener with people like Bjork and you know it was also true of of people like Brian Ferry you know wasn't it these Marmite voices for those of you don't know Marmite was a well how would you describe Marmite is it like a beef sort Um, of like a condiment of something good grief sir it's vegan it's vegan Marmite is it I'm thinking of what am I thinking I'm thinking of Bovril yeah no Marmite is yeast it's a yeast extract which they've made into a supremely Tasty paste that you can put on all sorts of things. I find muffins, crumpets, toast. Put a bit so of cheese so on So you it. like Marmite. I'm with you. You like Marmite. So yeah. you see, now, now the reason the expression Marmite and you're relating to having taste in something or not is that it's something that people either tended to get or completely not get. They loved it or they hated it. Yeah. I hate it. I hate Marmite. You love it. I love so it. So when... So we have this expression. I don't know if it translates outside of the UK. We have this expression, a Marmite voice, a Marmite. So you can do Marmite anything. Yeah. Basically, what you're saying by that is it's something that polarizes opinion. Exactly. So people yeah. either love it and they get it or they absolutely don't get it or hate it. Uh, what other albums would you like to particularly mention, Tim, here? Because I don't know most of these, to be honest. So. Um, you, you, there's a Canadian guy I really like, um, Destroyer, who has Destroyer's Rubies out this year. And it's not my favourite album of his, but it's a reasonably decent starting point. Slightly more conventional than a lot of his work. But Destroyer is a bit like War on Drugs in that he has incredibly unfashionable reference points. You know, Yacht Rock or Avalon era Roxy music, but manages to make these quite edgy Canadian indie albums. And he's got a very eccentric voice, almost like a kind of contemporary Peter Sarstedt and again quite a storytelling style but uh, I think you know Destroyer is an artist who is worth listening to and he had Destroyer's Rubies out this year one album I really liked this year was Hello Young Lovers by Sparks because I think that with Little Beethoven 2002 I think they'd found an entirely fresh vocabulary again and in this case it was these relentless repetitive pieces with almost orchestral fragments so it was somewhere between a sort of philip glass minimalism with almost a kind of hip-hop cut-up technique and repetitious lyrics and hello young lovers continues that and it's it's another brilliant 
Sparks album. And, um, you know, they're a case where he's got a very signature voice, but it doesn't seem to drag. It doesn't seem to become a parody of itself, which it easily could. So I think that, um, you know, they're a band who, again, they're having a moment in, you know, 2021, which is great to see. But I well, think... I was going to say they're really, they're really the the band of the moment, aren't they? I mean, yeah. God, there's there's two movies out right now, one about them and one where they've done the soundtrack or something. So they've all obviously always been very much a connoisseur's choice, haven't they? I mean, yeah. a lot of musicians, a lot of film directors, clearly a lot of film directors <laughs> uh, love Sparks. But apart from that very brief moment in the mid seventies, they've never really enjoyed that crossover to a, a large mainstream audience, have they? They haven't. Um, but but uh, as you say, a fascinating body of. I mean, I don't know, or you know, all of their records, but they're another of those artists that seem to exist in their own world where no one else sounds like them, and they continue to evolve and continue to change. Even now, I mean, they must be. I'm guessing Ron is in his seventies now. Is I he? think they're both um, mid seventies. Yeah, mid seventies. Yeah, even now, still you know, still kind of innovating, still progressing. And always with that very kind of wry arch sense of of playfulness and humour. I think that's the one thing that's been there. Because, you know, if you think about it, you know, for for the duo, they have constantly shifted, you know, almost as much as Mars Davis or David Bowie. And they started off with more kind of Anglo-centric influences like the who and the beatles but i think they fuse that with a love of things like gilbert and sullivan and and what have you but um you know yeah they had that commercial moment in the mid-70s when they somehow managed to collide with glam rock very effectively and then maybe in the late 70s when they managed to collide with electropop again when they'd worked with giorgio moroder and that was a great reinvention but you know, there's a, there's a sort of, there's a ZTT reinvention in the mid 80s. They did a track called Change, which is as astonishing as anything on ZTT. But they didn't leave it there. You know, they, they are continually shifting. And certainly this kind of little Beethoven, Hello Young Lovers shift is interesting because it's not like anything else out there. It's not like they said, OK, Pet Shop Boys have got aspects of sparks. Pet Shop Boys is a, is a good sort of reference in a way, isn't it? Because Neil Tennant obviously also has that kind of archness about him, but but he also had that kind of um, vulnerability and tenderness and sentimentality that I don't think, at least, I, again, I, I haven't heard all these Sparks albums and some of the, the ones you're talking about I'm not familiar with. I don't think, perhaps because Ron was writing the lyrics for his brother to sing, mm-hmm. that there wasn't ever that feeling that you were being let into someone's heart the way that you were with Neil Tennant and the Pet Shop Boys. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's, no. I'm, I'm wondering if that's probably why perhaps people have always found Sparks a little bit more impenetrable than they did. Because you're right, they had a lot in common with, with Sparks, Pet Shop Boys. And yet obviously Pet Shop Boys have been massively successful in a way that Sparks have not. I think you're right. I think it, it is the vulnerability. I think the one thing that you pointed out in a way that marks Sparks' world from the very, very beginning is... Perhaps a Zappa-esque quality, but even Zappa, you know, if you listen to Zappa's work, he can be hugely emotional with his guitar playing. So although there is a kind of heartless humorousness throughout Zappa's career, even there you get glimmers of love, affection, vulnerability. And I don't think you ever get that in the work of Sparks. You know, they remain an enigma. I think, and a brilliant enigma. So from their very early works as Half Nelson through to their glam period and their garage period, their electro-pop period, 
to the Groucho Marx meets Philip Glass period in the early 2000s, the one thing that remains is that maybe you don't get a sense of them as emotional human beings, but, you know, still a compelling and brilliant band. Okay, so let, let's try and wrap things up, Tim. Let's just go through some of the other ones that you have on the list that we haven't uh, given a mention to. Some of these, I think, neither of us have heard, but we'll, we should we should at least mention them anyway. So you've also got A Matter of Life and Death, Iron Maiden. Which from, I have heard. This year. Oh, you have heard that. This fits okay. into what we were saying about older artists just deciding we're going to do what we want to do. It's heartfelt, it's very well put together, and it's pretty ambitious, actually. The Letting Go by Bonnie Prince Billy, another in a string of fantastic records uh, by Will Oldham. Um, the Swell Season by Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Uglova. I, I don't know what a that very is. Very pretty but, but, album. Um, it's, it's a lovely album. He went on to greater success by writing the music to the film once, but I saw him live in Dublin at the time, and um, he was in that kind of Damien Rice territory of heartfelt singer-songwriter, but with some interesting arrangements and uh, did it well. You know, great voice, some good songs. Okay. These, he's that guy. I, I, yeah. I, I know that movie. So he's that guy, Glenn Hart. Okay. Then we have Sun who we previously mentioned as having collaborated with Scott Walker, collaborating this year on with, with Boris, the Japanese uh, trio Boris on an album called Alter, which I like a lot, which is, again, part of a, a great continuum of work that they've both those artists have produced, in fact. Um, Shearwater, Palo Santo, a concept album about Nico. What's not to love about that? <laughs> Amazing record. Amputecture by the Mars Volta. Uh, the Warning by Hot Chip. I don't know any of these records, so I'm, this is why I'm glossing over. Okay. Do you want to talk about any of those records? Well, not any of those particular. I mean, you know, records I remember getting at the time finding interesting. I mean, um, Nick Barches or Nick Betches, how you pronounce this, Ronin, they were still making their series of ECM albums that were very interesting, that kind of still stern yeah. jazz minimalism. And he's got a voice, and it's a great voice, and that's one of their... Strong albums always sound beautiful, of course, because it's an ECM record. One band that I completely fell in love with in the early 2000s with the Yoshimi album was Flaming Lips. And so they've got an album this year at War with the Mystics, which sort of sees them reasserting some more of their kind of psychedelic garage band credentials. So it's not one of my favourite albums, but, you know, I've got to say that, you know, Stephen Drozd, Wayne Coyne very much became favourite musicians for me. OK, Tim, let's wrap things up. So we, we need to do our usual thing. Pick one album for you that you would take to your desert island, you would hold close to your heart forevermore, and one album that you think is looking forward to what will what will come. I think it's going to be tough, that one, isn't it, for, for this I think year. this is it, yeah. Uh, yeah, because there isn't really, as you say, there isn't really a pattern and there isn't a record here which seems to have had... It seems to have cast... At least I'm looking down the list now, I can't... Maybe the Arctic Monkeys, you know... Um, Although, again, I'm not sure how many bands really came up in their wake. I think, you know, when we were talking about that, we pointed out that they were really the last of, of yeah. sort of rock bands to break through. So I'm not sure how influential they might have been. But anyway, what, what, would, you, what would you... I pick? suppose in terms of sort of <clears throat> suggesting what happened afterwards, I guess The Eraser by Tom York, because it suggests paths that he's taken at the very least. And obviously there's an artist, I don't know if you know, Stephen Wilson, I think it suggested some paths he's taken. Yeah, but as you pointed out to him at the time, I'm the only one that's actually <laughs> shown any influence from that record. So I don't think that's entirely true, by the way. I think he has been influential. But but I think you were right when you made the point that it doesn't seem to have become a, a signpost to the future in the way that perhaps it might have done. 
I'm looking at this list and I'm looking at some of the records that neither of us have heard and thinking, I bet that's the one, like the Hot Chip record. Oh, I, I know did, nothing no, about I'd Hot heard, Chip. Yeah, the Hot Chip. You know, they're good. Oh, I, I okay. like Hot Chip. Yeah. No, I mean, they're a good, playful, electronic dance pop band with influences like Robert Wyatt. So you can see there's something going on. They're a bit like Underworld in that sense that although it's producing a kind of electronic dance music with more of a pop sensibility in Hot Chip's case, um, they clearly know other things and you can hear it in it. You know, so I always kind of hear the, the Englishness of something like Robert Wyatt. Um, See, now looking at this now, I think there is an album that actually has proved to be quite influential, even though I'm not a big fan of um, the Burial album. Okay. Uh, because it was, in, in the dubstep scene, it was seen as the, as the great artistic masterwork um, and ended up being, you know, big critics' favourite and all that. So perhaps in that respect, the Burial album. My favourite album is of the year is the Tom York album. I genuinely okay. love that record. I, I still listen to it, um, you know, very often. In fact, I listen to all his solo records, probably more than I listen to Radiohead these days, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I agree with you on the burial. Although I say, I think maybe Tom York's eraser sort of hints at paths that he will take, and maybe a few sort of electronic artists. So I was going to say that the thing with with Tom York is that obviously he had the oxygen of publicity that being in Radiohead gives you. So he was hugely successful with an uncompromising work. So I think it's maybe been more influential than people suspect, but. Not a lot of people are necessarily succeeding with that uncompromising emotive voice against hard edge electronica approach. Um, so I'd go with, you know, the Tom York and the Burial Pats as being the most influential. Um, in terms of being my favourite, weirdly, I might actually go with Endless Wire by The Who, partly to be controversial, but it's partly for me because it was... So underrated, it was unusual, really, given that they'd not made an album for, at that stage, was it 24 years? I'd probably put it in there in my top five Who albums, and I think it's um, a genuine late-career ambitious statement. Putting in your top five Who albums isn't... I mean, there's only about eight (laughs) Who albums anyway, isn't there? Yeah, (laughs) it's in my top five of six Who albums, yeah. Yeah, but listen, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, we're talking about what, what perhaps trends or what's been the most influential perhaps that in itself has been an influence that's kind of come from that era 2006 the idea of the johnny cash the scott walker the who's the david gilmore's the kind of elder statesman of rock kind of returning to what they do best and and making these kind of noble late career statements i mean we kind of started off by talking about that maybe that in itself has had an influence on the industry because so often now these days don't you you see these artists, some of them are now in their seventies or even pushing eighties. You know, people like Paul McCartney, yeah. that are just basically making records that sound like Paul McCartney records and having mm. number one records. You know, yeah, yeah. and that kind of stuff is going on all the time. In fact, <clears throat> Iron Maiden are likely to be number one this week with their new record. So maybe that in itself is a trend that that you know that comes from this this period in time, this era. Okay, cool. So maybe we should leave it there, Tim, and uh, say thank you very much for listening and coming back to us after all this time. Sorry we were we were so tardy and it took us so long to get it together again, but we are hoping to come back with another episode pretty soon this time, one from the 80s, I believe we're going to do next. Indeed, I won't yeah. tell you what, to keep the suspense there. But for now, thank you very much for listening and goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.